What's up, guys? My name is CJ Finley, and this is the Thrive on Life podcast. I started a brand called Thrive on Life to help other mission-based people, brands, and businesses thrive. Each week, we interview entrepreneurs on topics of business, health, relationships, mindset, and much more to help us thrive in all areas of life. If the messages in this podcast resonate with you, but you're still feeling a little bit stuck in actually implementing these ideas, I'd love to help you on a more personalized level or connect you with somebody that can. So please reach out. Also, if you've got a friend who you know could benefit from hearing this episode, please share the love with them. My goal is always to spread positive impact through the sharing of knowledge, and I would be honored if you could help me achieve this goal. Today's guest is Matthew Comfer, the VP of Strategy and Business Development at Ability, a company on a mission to provide real-world practice without real-world consequences. They utilize their team-based simulation training to enhance leadership development efforts in 30-plus countries around the world. And while Matthew helps in these efforts, he has also helped start the Learn to Lead podcast, where he speaks with authors, academics, artists, and business and community leaders about how they developed as a leader and how they lead their organizations. Overall, this episode dives into how you can make better decisions throughout your life and career, and will leave you with some action items to make your own personal progressions. Please tune in and welcome to the show, Matthew Confort. What's up, fam? It's another Thrive Thursday, and I'm super excited for today's episode. We have Matthew Comfer. He's the VP at a company called Ability, where they help other companies with their leadership and their strategy. So I'm super excited for this conversation because at Thrive on Life, we like to inspire other people to make better decisions about their physical, mental, and spiritual health, as well as their careers. So first and foremost, how are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, every single episode, we kind of kick it off and get right into it. And he is a leader in decision making. So one of the things I know a lot of people struggle with out there is making decisions around how to reach out to other people and get their personal brand or their business brand out there. And one thing that you did is you reached out to me on LinkedIn. And I always like receiving messages from other people that are looking to share their stories, because I'm super passionate about sharing other people's stories. But what is some advice you can give to people out there around decision making and getting yourself out there, whether it's for getting on a podcast like you did, or for anything else in their life that they're trying to achieve? Well, I think the first thing when it comes to reaching out is you have to be comfortable that the vast majority of people potentially won't reciprocate and get back to you. You have to just be a little bit, you have to be willing to take that leap. I think if you're willing to take the leap, the second and most important thing is you have to pick something out about that individual that intrigued you as the reason for reaching out. If it feels like it's a copy and pasted message that you send to anybody and everybody, I don't think it's going to resonate. If instead you say something to the effect of, I loved this post that you did on XYZ topic, here's something that I'm doing that is in an auxiliary field to that or it has some connection to that, I would love to grab 15 minutes to learn more about why you're doing what you're doing or I'd love to share with your audience what I'm doing. I love that. Yeah. So in the in the beginning, I mean, I just posted this on social media for people to see. I always like to share like the behind the scenes of how I interact with other people and how we even get to where we're at right now. And one thing that you did was you made it known that you kind of looked into our story and followed along and then tied that together of how that would be valuable for us. So I love that piece of advice because a lot of people forget to build rapport with that person first. But Next question I have in regards to the decision making is I, I watched your TEDx talk and I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you even got to that stage. Because if I'm correct, you worked at Deloitte for a pretty long time. How did you even end up getting on that stage at TEDx? And feel feel free to make this as short or as long-winded as you see fit. Well, so I did. I started my career at Deloitte and it was an incredible place to start your career. I think consulting is a great opportunity to learn how a lot of very successful organizations operate. What it led me to realize about myself is that I'm really interested in the field of leadership development and training. And so about two and a half years ago, I joined my current company, which is called Ability, and we do leadership simulation training for organizations all around the world. So if you think about 
new manager training at Dell here in town in Austin or executive development training at the Target Corporation. A lot of the programs that they're running are actually simulation-based events that our organization is running. And one of the things that we've learned watching these thousands and tens of thousands of leaders in simulations is there is an effective way to make decisions or there's a strategy that to us really allows people to excel in our simulation. And so I worked up that strategy. We ended up calling it Before You Decide. So it's three steps to effective decision-making before you make a decision. And I actually was contacted by an individual who was running a TEDx event in Dallas. And they offered the opportunity to pitch an idea. I pitched the decision-making idea. And it was about a three to four month process of working with them on the topic, presenting the outline, actually formulating the talk, and then doing a few dry runs before they ever let you think about getting on stage. And so last year I got on stage, presented the talk, and the feedback has been exceptionally positive. And it's been really wonderful to get on shows like yours and, and talk more about decision making. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love the talk and I re highly recommend it for everybody out there. We're going to put it in the show notes so you'll be able to dive right into that. But I think a lot of people out there hope to be on that stage and share their story, their book, whatever it may be, but they don't realize all the steps that it takes to get to there. Run us through a little bit of how you even ended up at Deloitte. So where'd you go to college? What'd you go to school for? And then how did you enter the world of consulting? Was it always something that you wanted to do or saw that you were going to do? Um, or did you kind of just take the path of least resistance? <laughs> so I went to a college called Wheaton College. It's a small school in Southern Massachusetts. I originally wanted to be a lawyer and I thought I wanted to go into political science and go down the legal route. I quickly found out that the world of economics and business was a little bit more of where I belonged. That led me to internships in college, which to go back to where we kicked off the conversation was really all about the hustle in some ways. I was reaching out to people in my hometown in finance, asking if they had internships. I went to a small liberal arts school. There weren't a lot of companies that were recruiting on our campus. So it was about reaching out to the local branch of Merrill Lynch or Smith Barney or these, these large organizations that had small little satellite offices and asked if I could internship with them for the summer. I ended up graduating college in 2008 during the great financial crisis. So not exactly <laughs> the best time to be going into the world of finance. And that actually is what led me to consulting. So I had two opportunities to join firms upon graduation, one of which was with Bank of America, which ended up going away um, because of the turmoil in the financial world. And the other was with Deloitte Consulting. So in many ways, my decision was made for me and it was a really fortuitous thing. I spent almost five years at Deloitte in Boston, Massachusetts, met my now wife there. She was also employed there and we made the decision about two and a half years ago to um, move, excuse me, mo move to Austin about six and a half years ago. And then two and a half years ago, I made the decision to join Ability. That's awesome, man. So many questions I have, and we're a lot more related uh, than you would believe. It's funny because wh when I was getting into my senior year, I was recruiting uh, or being recruited Bank of America, uh, Accenture, um, UBS Wealth Management, and but I was an engineer and I went to school for engineering and I started realizing that once I got my engineering internships that I didn't really want to go down that path. So I started seeking these other internships and a lot of, I graduated in like 2012, 2013, where a lot of, I think the banks were looking at hiring engineers. I was going into IT and it was a good transfer for me because I wanted to, I'm a people person. I wanted to be in the business world, but why did you want to be a lawyer? I think there's a lot of people listening on here, including myself, that we started off this one path thinking we wanted to go this one way and then kind of pivoted. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. What got you intrigued with being a lawyer in the first place? Man, I got to be honest. I think part of it was Law and Order as a kid. I just wanted to be <laughs> like, I, I just wanted to be Jack McCoy. SVU? I thought, yeah, Which well, one? it was it was the original and then original? you come to love, you know, SVU and Criminal Intent and all of those shows. And there were, to me, there was something about 
making a compelling argument and convincing people that one, I thought my skills lined up with, but two was really intriguing to me. I think where I ended up being wrong was being a lawyer is that, but it's also a lot of paperwork and diligence and getting reports done. And that is not the way that my brain works really well. So part of what I loved about the financial industry, even though I didn't end up going into it, was the interaction with clients and people and a lot of the internships that I did. I found that I liked the collaboration with colleagues, but also the interaction with clients. And I think in the end, that's why consulting ended up being the right fit for me. I'm somebody who likes working on a lot of different things. And in consulting, or at least in the group that I went into, you were moving into multiple projects at any given time. You were interacting with different stakeholders. You were moving between projects pretty frequently. And I think my brain works well in that environment. I wholeheartedly agree. And that's one of the reasons I got into entrepreneurship is I like working on a bunch of different projects at a bunch of different times. And it suits me. And when I was in engineering, it was really, I would go to my desk and you're more of like an apprentice. And it also was a lot of paperwork because anytime you do like, we did a lot of change controls. So if you're in, I was a systems engineer and you're trying to change systems, you have to document the original system and then make paperwork for every little change that you're going to make. And I started realizing like, even though I liked building things, I didn't like the reporting side of things. So I needed to find a way where I can kind of mix both worlds of what I liked with also something to make an impact and obviously have a successful career. But I know we have some college age listeners. A lot of them, obviously education's up in the air right now. And even one of our teammates, Hamza, he was recruiting at Deloitte and Accenture and some other places what is your advice to anybody that's in college right now if they want to get into that consulting world? Because if they start recognizing that they like to work on multiple different projects and do a bunch of different things, what is your advice to to them so that they can actually make that leap and get into kind of the role that you had? One of the things that's intrigued me the most as my career has gone on, I've been more and more involved in recruiting at a large company like Deloitte, but also at the much smaller companies that I've worked at since Deloitte. And the thing that I didn't realize, it ended up working in my favor, but I didn't realize it at the time, is when we're in a recruiting conversation, yes, it's really important the degree that you have, the grades that you got, the but everybody has that to a certain extent. I've found that the vast majority of hiring conversations that I have spend an inordinate amount of time on the intangibles. So you put two, three, four candidates next to each other. And on the whole, the vast majority of them potentially went to a pretty good school and got pretty good grades. The usual differentiator is what did they do outside of that? So I think my biggest suggestion when I talk to students at schools that I attended or just in general, if people reach out on LinkedIn and ask for advice or have conversations like this, my biggest feedback is what is your overarching story and what parts of it do you control outside of the usual, I went to this school, I did this major, I got these grades. And sometimes it's, I volunteered on a political campaign for a summer and I did you know, canvassing to grow the voter roles. And I'm really passionate about how organization and skills in the business world can transpire into politics or community organizing, or I'm really interested in this cause and this is what I'm doing, or I got involved with this nonprofit. Those are the little tweaks to people's overarching resume that at least in my short experience in a hiring context has made the difference. So I think that's also my overarching piece of advice. It also allows you to do things that you're really, really interested in. It's great in college or in high school or in other academic pursuits that you can take electives and push yourself in certain directions that you're interested in. Outside of standardized academia, though, you can do whatever you want. And if it tells the story that you're looking to tell, feel free to pursue whatever you want and make that a concise reason why somebody should bring you on to their team. I love that. And to add on to that, another question would be, should people during college and they're looking to get a role outside of college, obviously, should they be looking to go deep and narrow with their skill sets outside of their normal curriculum or should they be going a little bit wider? Because this is something that I always struggle with and it's a question that I get a lot. So I'd love to 
pick your brain on it where kids will come to me and ask, should I stick with one thing and get really, really good at it? Or should I kind of like try a bunch of different things and add a bunch of different things to my quote unquote resume? I think if you go the wide route, I'll make the argument for both. If you go the wide route, you have to have an overarching narrative of why it doesn't look really disjointed. It's okay if it's disjointed early, but you need to start to come together with something. Is project management, is strategy, is sales, is there some underlying theme to why you were doing something different? That's okay, as long as there's that narrative. And if anything, it shows depth and breadth of what you can do. I think that's the fear, though. If you put somebody's resume on the table or you look at their LinkedIn profile and you can't figure out what the narrative is or they can't convince you in the two-minute elevator pitch what their narrative is of why they would add value to your team and what their experience in the past has done that would get them there, then the wide route is going to cause you problems. Conversely, if it feels like you're somewhat pigeonholed into certain specific things and that's all you do and that's all you know how to do, the vast majority of smaller companies are looking for somebody who is a little bit more kind of jack of all tradesy. They can wear different hats. They can be successful in different roles. And in that sense, if you've narrowly focused and don't have anything in your resume or in your kind of generic pitch about yourself that shows that level of flexibility, you're probably going to run into issues if you're really hoping to join a five-person fast-growing startup. They're going to want somebody who can play a lot of different roles. Oh, I love that. And thank you for providing arguments on both sides. I think that was super valuable for not even just college kids, but anybody else out there. A lot of it is just around the story that you're able to tell. And is that story compelling to the listener? And are you communicating it in the right way? Because I was the guy that did a bunch of different things. But I remember in my Accenture um, interview, they actually asked me a question revolving around like why I was involved in so many different things rather than like, because I was an athlete and I'll do intramurals. I was in a fraternity, um, engineering clubs, like different things like that. But I made sure that I told them the story of like, that's just how I operate. And if I get bored, I actually don't excel. If I'm around a diverse amount of people and solving a lot of problems, that w- that's what makes me happy. Um, and ultimately, anybody that's happy is going to excel and succeed at what they're doing rather than if you're depressed, you just don't want to do anything. So if you're a person listening out there right now and you're kind of in pigeonholed yourself and you don't want to be, please know that you can kind of go out there and do a bunch of different things and be successful. Or if you're that person that feels like you're getting overwhelmed and there's too much being thrown at you, you can also go down that that deep and narrow. But run us through, so you're, you're at Deloitte. It sounds like you didn't have any animosity there. You you liked consulting and you liked what you were doing. Why the switch up? Why going into a smaller company? I think it's one of the hardest things that I ever struggled with. And I'd made it to the managerial ranks at Deloitte, which I was very proud of. It took a lot of work. It felt as though I had hit a point where I was either about to commit the next five years of my life at Deloitte and make the very grueling push towards senior manager, which is the level kind of right below um, their director or partnership level, um, which would have been a, a whole nother, you know, Mount Everest type of climb. And what I felt was I had only ever worked at Deloitte. And I have to say, I was kind of in the mode of not necessarily the grass is greener. I knew the grass was green at Deloitte. It was more a sense of, I want to try something different. So I ended up being recruited to join Robert Half, which is a very large professional staffing firm, but they also have a consulting group inside of Robert Half. And the Austin office of that consulting group was looking to bring on a director of their small team. And so to me, I thought this was the perfect blend of what I had done before, plus what I was hoping to do in the future, which is maybe a little bit smaller, smaller team, more influence. And I went there. And it was actually an okay fit for me. I don't think it was the right fit longer term. But one thing that happened is I started to build a lot more connections here in Austin. The reason that that was important is when I was at Deloitte, your network is more broad. 
our clients were all around the country, all around the globe. Whereas for Robert Half, the consulting that they did was here based in Austin. And I ended up using some of those connections to actually leverage my next role, which was a role at a financial technology company here in Austin called Casasa. And I focused on some of their West Coast relationships. So they had relationships with community banks and credit unions. And I actually led a team that ran some of the West Coast operations for about 25 or 30 of their institutions. That was really interesting to me because it brought me back to some of the things that I liked about the financial sector. And then to come completely full circle, it was a LinkedIn connection with somebody who was working at Ability, my current company, and they were actually looking for somebody to come on on a VP sales and strategy role. And I have never worked for a company this small. So to give you some context, Ability is about 12 full-time employees, and then we have contractors and facilitators all around the world. And honestly, I was just giddy about the opportunity to join a really small firm. And additionally, at my time at Deloitte, I helped to design some of the training for our new hires. And that was a big chunk of what drew me to Ability. I wanted to be focused on talent development and leadership development. And it has been an incredible about two and a half year professional journey um, thus far since I joined Ability. Did you know that it's an amazing story? Did you know anybody in Austin before you moved here? I'm assuming like your your home base was in Boston still when you were with yeah. Deloitte. So how did you go from Boston to Austin? Like, did it just randomly pop up or had you been to Austin before? So my my wife is an incredible woman. We were not married at the time, but it was actually her idea. Um, so she was from Phoenix, Arizona. We both absolutely adored Boston. We both absolutely hated the cold. And so we were looking for a city that was growing, that still had somewhat of a walkable downtown feel to it. And they also had our group, the group that we were working with at Deloitte, had an office here in Austin. So we came out to visit and this is a story that is pretty similar to, I think, a lot of people who live here. We fell in yeah. love with the city. We met people. We loved the vibe, the food, the tacos, the barbecue, the environment. It was perfect. And so we ended up presenting it to our manager, talked about it. The office here in Austin was growing. They were looking for you know new managers to come out here. Um, and it was the perfect match. That's awesome. And I had to ask, one of the reasons is one of the girls on our team is from Boston and she moved out here. And one of my, one of the best men in my wedding, he's living in Boston now and he flies out here and the cold man in Boston. I, one, one year I flew in at, in May to visit him and I swore it was going to be like at least 60 degrees and it was 45. And it, it killed me because obviously in Austin, like we deal with the opposite problem, which is it's super hot. But what was your transition like? So you ended up moving out to Austin and I know there's a lot of people out there, especially with COVID and everything, probably thinking maybe I should move or maybe I should try something new. What would your tips of advice, again, around the decision-making of moving somewhere new, like what are the top three to five things that people should know when they move in and switch their job? What decisions should they be making? I was in an interesting situation. I was very happy at Deloitte, but I also, I think in the back of my head, knew that this was not going to be the rest of my life. And so when I moved out to Austin, I used the fact that I had moved to a new location as a reason. And I went on LinkedIn and tried to find people that were doing interesting things that were based here in Austin. And I remember sending probably hundreds of messages saying something to the effect of, I'm moving to Austin. I very clearly said I'm moving with Deloitte. So it didn't feel like I was, you know, directly asking for a job. I just basically pitched it like I would love to grow my network and learn about what you're doing and what your tips are about Austin. I have found that people like talking about themselves and they like helping people. And so if you have a real completely rational reason to reach out, which moving to a new location is that rational reason. And then you also give people an out. And what I mean by that is I remember vividly in the email saying, or in the LinkedIn message saying, I'm happy to grab 10 minutes on the phone if you're up for it, or I would love to meet in person when I get to Austin, if you have a specific space that you like really recommend, coffee shop, taco, truck, whatever. And I think when you give people options, 
I hate to say it like this, but it almost makes it harder to say no when they have a reason to say yes to one or two things. So a phone call is less of a commitment mm -hmm. than meeting in person. So if you offer up, I would love to meet you in person and pick your brain and learn more about your time in Austin and here's what I'm working on. But I'm also totally open to a quick 10 minute introductory phone call. And then it's like, it feels weird for them to say no to both of those things because you've given them two options. Oh man, that's such good advice. And one of the things that I remember when I when I moved here, it was very very similar. There was like some app, it was like called Shaper or something. And what I would do is just try to meet up with people and understand more of like what they were working on, what problems that I can solve. And you hit the nail on the head where people love to talk about themselves and also love to talk about the problems that they're having within their own life. So I would literally be like just the listener or the fly on the wall, but I was just trying to get connected to what the heck was going on in Austin because I had moved from Houston and Nashville before that. And then I was on the East Coast like yourself before that. And I think a lot of people are afraid to actually put themselves out there because they're starting to think, why would they even want to talk to me? But a lot of people in today's world with being on the computers all day, like we're burnt out and we're looking for people to engage with and connect with. And I think if you come from that side of things, you're going to be able to, just like you said, reach out and give them a couple options so that it feels like they're making the decision to meet with you rather than being forced. But I'd love to switch this up into more so where you reached out to me and you're an expert in decision making. How did you get the role at Ability? And tell us a little bit more about that company because you said it's a small company, but how did it even, I guess, start? And then your role today, what does that look like? Yeah, so I randomly saw a post on LinkedIn. One of the people that I was connected with shared that an organization here in town was looking for somebody. They had posted the role on their website. And then I did a little bit of due diligence. So I actually looked at Abilities page. I honestly saw that they were working with some incredible organizations. And I flatly said to them when I first connected, I've never heard of you guys. I've been in Austin for four years now, and I can't believe that this small firm is helping to develop the leaders at some Fortune 500 companies, and I've never heard of you. I just want to learn more. And I came to them with three or four things that I really thought that they should do. And it ended up leading to about two weeks worth of interviews, meeting with the leadership team, meeting with the rest of the team. And then it was actually the fastest that I've ever made the decision to join a company. And I was really excited. I have never worked at a firm smaller than, at the time, 300 people, but most of the companies I'd worked for had 100,000 people working for them. And this was a 12-person company. And to give you the backstory on what we do, if your listeners are familiar with the game SimCity... It's almost like if you took simulation-based gaming, but turned it into a leadership development event. So instead of running a city and being the mayor of a city, in our games, you're the manager of a virtual team. So you have six employees who all have different personality profiles, and they respond to the decisions that you make. And it's all about providing feedback and coaching, and how do you actually excel as a people manager? And then we have an experience that's all about finance. So if you're a rising leader at Dell here in town and you don't really have a good understanding of balance sheets and income statements and cash flow and how a company makes money, we actually have a simulation game that's focused on financial acumen. And then we have a simulation that's all focused on decision making and leadership and communication. So we run these different events with organizations in about 30 countries around the world, and it's all about developing their talent pipeline. So how do they actually grow managers into senior leaders? How do they grow individual contributors into managers? And that's really where we focus our time. That's amazing. And man, there's so many questions I want to ask because I'm super nerdy when it comes to building culture and, and leadership, having played sports my entire life. I don't know why it took me this long, but just started watching The Last Dance uh, with <laughs> uh, Michael Jordan and like seeing how he had to change as a leader over the years to finally win his championship. And people don't realize that, and I, in, especially in the startup world, to have a successful company is predicated on like teams and then great individuals. And the more that you're able to give back to those individuals and help them grow, the better the entire pie will do. And 
So if if I was one of the companies that was looking to be serviced by you guys, am I just running through this software myself, or do you have consultants that help us run through it as well, or run us through like what is a day in the life of if I were to use your product? Yeah, such a great question. The actual game is a team-based game. So if you and I were in a high potential new manager program at XYZ organization, we'll take Coca-Cola, they're, they're a client of ours. If you and I were new managers at Coca-Cola, we would actually both log into the simulation. So it's a browser-based game. But if you and I were on the same team, you would see information on your screen about our employees or the products that we're selling, but we would be competing against the other teams in the simulation. So it's actually a synchronous experience. So if there were 30 of us in this new manager program at Coca-Cola, there might be four to five teams and we would actually be competing with the other teams. So one of the That's games, awesome. you, you build a business from the ground up. So if you and I are teammates, we're deciding what products to sell, what price to sell them at, what marketing campaigns to run, how to handle our team. And the game is actually sending us email in real time. So if I'm the CEO of this fictitious company and you're my CFO, I need to be communicating with you because you're setting the budget for our team, but I'm getting emails about potential external events on the horizon or acquisitions that we can make. What we're trying to do is kind of throw ambiguity at leaders and see how they handle it. And then at the end of every simulated quarter, the game's like broken into simulation quarters, we debrief the experience. So we actually have a facilitator for every experience that's talking about, you know, why did you make that decision? How did your team actually deal with the fact that you guys had dissent about what to do? So we talk about communication and strategic thinking. We talk about how you're actually building cohesive units as a team. We talk about company culture. And then at the end of the experience for one of our simulations, you actually present to this fictitious board of directors about why you've won the experience. So it's about kind of tying everything together. How do you make decisions? How do you operate as a team? And then how do you actually concisely pull together a vision of why your team was victorious? Oh, I love that. And so if you're working with the Coca-Colas of the world, what what is the range of the different the various companies that you're working with? Is it only like Fortune 500 or are you working with small teams as well? What does that look like? Yeah, the interesting thing about what we do is the bulk of our work is with pretty large organizations because they have multiple cohorts in their leadership programs. But we've actually started to move down the spectrum and we've worked with many more small to mid-sized companies in their like high potential and executive development programs. And then additionally, last year we rolled out an in-person, which is now fully virtual, a product that we're calling the Invited MBA. And it's a mini MBA, not accredited MBA, but it actually utilizes all three of our simulations and utilizes coaches and advisors from the local Austin business community who put you into cohorts where you do action learning projects. And so we've actually seen a big uptick in this in COVID as more and more people are looking to enhance their networks, enhance their skills, but honestly can't afford or don't want to spend the money to go back for a full-time MBA or even a part-time MBA program. Awesome. And who would benefit most from this? Because you're you're talking about obviously leadership programs, but I know from building projects and companies like kind of where culture goes wrong and what skills you need versus skills that you should not seek out when you go into these companies, who are the people that you see succeeding the most? What kind of attributes and characteristics? And the reason I ask this question is for other people out there who are looking to grow in their leadership and decision-making, how can they have the self-awareness to reflect and say to themselves, hmm, maybe this is something that I need to seek? Whether it's ability or any other course out there around decision-making, maybe this is something I should be looking at. And the way that they're going to come to that conclusion is understanding who are the people that you see doing fairly well, and then who are the people that you see kind of like not so doing fairly well, and what are those characteristics of those two different types of people? Hmm. It's a question I get frequently when, when I facilitate an event. It, 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 when, you, when you walk into the room, the question is always, you know, who do you think is going to do really well in this experience? If I had to boil it down, I would say the people who listen first and then speak later 
are those that excel. These are team-based events. So there is an element of you, you know, you want to be collaborative, you want to be communicative with your team. There usually is one to two individuals on every team who tries to kind of assert dominance a little bit early on and have their perspective be the perspective that the team takes. I have found that the people who are really successful and endear themselves to other members of the team are those that ask probing questions, but don't necessarily try to dictate terms early. They wait to actually try to disseminate all of the information and distill it to the team so that they can actually be seen as somebody who's a little bit more of a collaborator, a little bit more of a consensus builder. So if I had to boil it down, people who are successful in any training and specifically in our training are those that try to be a little bit more consensus building and a little bit less dictatorial in terms of this is a team and I want to see them do this, hang back a little bit, hear what the team is thinking, kind of get a sense for the team dynamics, and then kind of share your perspective. That has tended to resonate in a lot of the rooms and in the virtual classrooms that I've been in. Uh, I love that. And it, it's that's a hard lesson that, I mean, I'm going to be honest, uh, I had to learn the hard way because growing up, like again, playing sports and wanting to be the captain and wanting to kind of like assert dominance. Once I got into engineering, I started realizing that like, we're trying to build a bridge, right? You just can't start digging. Like I wanted to be the guy that just started digging, but maybe there's oil under the ground. Maybe there's things that you don't even see yet. And you have to essentially collect all of the data before you make those decisions. And that's where I kind of want to drive this, this conversation is what type of data are you guys looking at to determine what team is the winner versus loser and what people are are doing well? Because obviously, if you're building the software, you, ha- you have to have, be collecting something or some type of metric to determine this. And one thing that I try to do is make data-driven, we say to Thrive all the time, make data-driven decisions and kind of take your emotions out of it and see the full scope before you really make a decision. And once you get the full data dive into that decision rather than kind of what most people do is half-assing decisions across the board. So I'd love to understand more, honestly, for my own personal um, geekiness, what metrics are you trying to determine when they're going through these different trainings? Hmm. So one of the simulations that I was talking about is the decision-making simulation or our strategic thinking simulation. And you're building this business from the ground up and the game is tracking your financials. It's tracking how profitable you are. It's tracking the revenue that you're driving. You actually have these virtual employees and it's tracking how engaged they are because you make decisions on, do you want to work them on a project? Do you want to train them? Do you want to run different engagement projects to actually help boost their morale? The game is tracking all of that. And then we're playing multiple quarters. And if you remember, one of the things that I said is the final activity is you've got four teams, let's say, and they're competing. The final activity is each team has to present to this fictitious board of directors asking for a second round of funding. Because the way we pitch the game is we're going to give each of your teams seven and a half million dollars. You're going to compete. And then at the end, you're going to ask for a second round of funding. And we're going to pick one team to trust our fictitious second round of funding with. And what a lot of organizations do is they bring in senior leaders to sit in on that board of directors and listen to the presentations. And here's the answer to your question. What I find is a lot of people spend all of their time during their presentation talking about the numbers. We were number one in revenue. We were number two in profit. We didn't lose any of our people to the competition because their engagement was off the charts. That's great. Board of directors, senior leaders, they love that. The vast majority of teams, though, never spend any time or not enough time in the presentation making the ask, tying in the, we did this, but here's why you should invest in us. We become so wedded to the numbers on the page that we don't paint the story of what the heck the numbers actually mean. And so my biggest suggestion at the end of any of our events, the final debrief that we do is always, what do you wish you did differently? And the vast majority of the team say, I had four minutes to present to the board of directors. I sure as hell should not have spent three minutes and 30 seconds talking about what already happened. I should have spent the bulk of time saying, this is what happened, but this is what will happen next. And this is why it's going to happen. So painting a picture, telling a story is what makes really effective leaders. 
That's amazing. And it's funny, this relates to my life as well. Um, I'm a facilitator for something called Doing Wit, which is a nonprofit to help teenagers become entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. essentially, I get a cohort and they pitch at the end of the, the semester. So I start with 10 kids October first. Um, and then in December, they pitch their ideas and I help them walk through their ideas and build the, them out. And they always, like nine out of 10 kids forget to ask. They nail the entire pitch, but they forget the ask at the end. Um, and one thing that I've raised some money and and looked into it a lot is always reverse engineering down that from the ask rather than like, mm-hmm. so I'll always figure out my story predicated on who are we asking like, who is that person? Just like how you reach out to me, you build that rapport. How do I, like the ask matters just as much as the numbers. Cause if they're not a numbers guy, you need to know that. And you need to know what's their background. Who are you actually asking for? Like, what are you asking for? And then who are you asking um, at the end of the day, whether it's your manager or your boss or the CEO, whatever, understanding who that person is and what they, what story they want to be told and communicated. So I, I love that response and to shift a little bit because I, I'm always trying to provide value to the audience. Maybe somebody that maybe doesn't have a corporate role or can't afford to use softwares like this. Are there any book recommendations, courses, or habits that you actively pursue or have pursued in the past that help you make better decisions above and beyond? Because obviously you work at Ability, but somebody that is the leader in VP and strategy at a company like that obviously is pursuing better decisions in their own life. So from a personal standpoint, somebody out there listening, what advice could you give to them to start making better decisions? Yeah. So one of the things that I love about one of the programs that we run is we try to put people into real world scenarios. So pick something in the news that happened recently from a business perspective or play the role of a CEO during a PR nightmare and play both sides of it. You know, try to push yourself to think if I was at the podium trying to defend a decision that we made, or if I was in the boardroom, how would I actually approach it? And if you have a friend and you're sitting and you're having a beer or having a coffee, like role play it back and forth. That's something that we do frequently with organizations. Like we'll pull them out of the simulation and we'll say, okay, in your real world, you've been playing in this simulated world, but in your real world, what are you struggling with right now? They'll say what they're struggling with, and then they'll tell us what they think the the right answer is. And I'll just look at them and I'll say, okay, now argue the complete antithesis of that. Give me the other side of it. Try to put yourself in the position of your adversary or put yourself in the opposite position that you think you should take and argue for that. And what I find time and time again is if you take that other position, it makes your position stronger because you are then forced to knock holes in your situation. So if you need to just pull something out of you know, the quintessential, pull it out of the front page of the Wall Street Journal and role play it with somebody and then switch roles and see how you put holes in your own position. And I think that makes you a more effective communicator and it makes you more effective when it comes to decision making. That's not exactly what I talked about from the TEDx stage. I focus more on a framework that you can employ, but I think it's really powerful to sometimes play devil's advocate to something that you're thinking. And I think it makes you a stronger decision maker if you think in those terms. So pulling out a uh, a halo, I don't know if you played halo back in the day, but we, we have a saying in the startup, red team, blue team. So like if you're on the red team right now, like, and you're pitching this idea, get on the blue team and fight as if you were fighting against yourself. So I love, I absolutely love that advice. And I think it's something, especially in today's world, all the the polarization that's going on today, not enough people do that and are open to, okay, I'm thinking in this way, or I'm acting in this way. What if I did the opposite or what is to say that this is the right way versus the wrong way? So I love that, but we're getting close to having to wrap up, unfortunately. And there's a million other questions that I want to ask because this is, this combo is right up my alley. And actually, I want to run through your simulation myself because this is, it seems fun. Like, and, and my team to learn about, um, can you build a profitable company in, in this little simulation? Like that's, that's really cool and intriguing, but I'd love to learn a little bit about you personally. And one of the questions I always ask people is like, what is your mission above and beyond? Obviously what you're doing in your career, you seem super passionate about 
helping other people learn and, and excel. Um, but where do you see yourself in the next five, 10, 20 years? And what are some of the goals that you have? One thing that I loved about Deloitte, but I think that every organization needs to work on is how do we develop the leaders of tomorrow? And for lack of a better way to describe it, PowerPointing them to death is not going to get us there. So just sitting in a room and having somebody tell you what it means to be an effective manager is not going to get you to the position of being an effective manager. So I'm a firm believer in real world practice. We talk at our organization a lot about the fact that you put pilots in a simulator before you put them behind a jumbo jet and put people in the back of it and put people's lives in their hands. In some ways, we put managers in positions of holding people's careers in their hands without letting them really train and try things in that environment. So one of the things that I'm probably the most passionate about is that we as rising leaders, as young leaders at organizations, would be really benefited by opportunities to practice. And one thing that I know about myself is it's scary to try a different technique with a real person. I have been a manager now for X number of years. I think I'm okay at it, but I'm also really reticent to change because it's scary. What's worked for you before, you know, you just keep doing it because it's petrifying to try a new skill on an actual person. And so what I like about simulation-based learning is it gives you the comfortable limits to actually get into kind of a sandbox and practice. So my biggest piece of advice is we should be practicing more. We should be doing things to press our comfortable limits and not like save that for actual training on real humans. I love that. And I think where my mind goes is, are, are you guys planning anything with like augmented reality or VR like for the future? Because I could see this be massively impactful where, I mean, you put a headset on and like it, it almost feels real. Is that something that you have thought about or the company has thought about or? It, it is. And the most interesting thing to our business right now is pre-COVID, only about 20% of our trainings were fully virtual. So about 80% of the time, we got people into a classroom to do these types of events or into a boardroom or a conference room or something. Now, everybody is asking for virtual training, one, because they have to do it that way, but two, because they realize that we never really trained into what does it mean to effectively lead teams and effectively lead a business when you can't all be in the room together. So I think it's a massive opportunity for us. I think there's a VR, there's an AR play to that, but there's also just a sense of we really need to learn what it means to manage people through a camera. And that was just not something that was taught as readily as how do you have a one-on-one -on -one meeting when you can take them out for a coffee or you can do it in a conference room in the office. Yeah, that's super powerful. And I guess it's obviously today's time, everybody is forced to adapt, but I could really see that if you can do a hybrid and have people in person and then eventually where it is AR and augmented, um, we can actually train a lot of leaders up without actually having to be in that room, which is super cool and inspiring and motivating to me because I can see this becoming a massively important tool um, for a lot of people out there. Um, one thing I always ask is who, who is your like perfect customer? So that way maybe, maybe there somebody out there is listening right now and uh, maybe they're the VP of in HR somewhere and they're like, wow, I got to reach out to Matt. Who would that person be? Like, what are some of the things that they're struggling with in their company right now or in their teams where you're the guy to call like tomorrow? So I'm going to give you two. One would be the corporate leader who feels like their current training is missing the mark. People have complained that it's not interactive enough. It's not real world enough. Those can be small companies just because we've expanded our offerings to let smaller groups go through the simulations. They could also obviously be medium to large size companies. The other customer is somebody who isn't ready to make the leap to go back to school full time or to do a certification program, but they want to enhance their business skills and they want to build a network and interact with business leaders, get a lot of what you get out of an MBA program, but do it in a shorter time frame with a simulation-based approach to it. And for them, I would look at our invited MBA. Um, we've done it 
now this will be our third or fourth cohort through it. It's fully virtual now. And I mean, the price point is under $2,000 and we offer scholarships and it's, it's sponsored by some local companies here in town, but anybody around the country can sign up for it. Yeah, that's definitely something I'm going to be checking out because I think it's something that a lot of people in my network could utilize. And how, if that perfect person wants to reach out, how, what is the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, Matthew Confer is my handle on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm probably the most active on LinkedIn and Twitter. You referenced the the TEDx talk, which is called Before You Decide. So if anybody wants to reach out specifically about that. And then one of the things that I had mentioned to you is our company launched a, a podcast earlier this year and they made the decision and mistake to let me host it, which has been a ton of fun. And it is called Learn to Lead. So it is all focused on leadership development. And it's been a been a pleasure to talk to you. That's awesome. And Matthew, thank you so much again for, for reaching out. This is super inspiring to me. And I'm looking forward to chatting offline because I have some other questions um, around your software and potentially how um, I could just get a run through of it. Cause I, I just really, my brain is going all haywire because I want to see how this, how this works and how I can basically push you guys out into the world. Cause I think it could help a lot of people out there. Um, one of the biggest things that I took from this conversation is when you said to listen first, uh, those are the people that you see kind of being successful with your software. I think it's something I am striving for right now. I'm finding peace in just listening and uh, quieting my mind a little bit and then making better decisions that way. So anybody else listening, that was my biggest takeaway today, but Matthew dropped some bombs on how to make better decisions and then ultimately how to get up, leave your city and kind of find your own way into a career that you love. So if there's anyone out there that is looking for something new or looking to strive to make better decisions and live a better life and thrive on life, Matthew's a great person to reach out to. We'll have his contact in the show notes. Please, please, please reach out and connect with him. That's what we are all about at Thrive. And until next time, guys, this is CJ Finley with the Thrive on Life podcast. Thrive on y'all. What's up, y'all? This is CJ again. On behalf of our small team behind the scenes and myself, thank you so much for listening to another one of our Thrive on Life episodes. The time you spend with us is very much appreciated. As mentioned before the show, our mission is always to help those around us get better. We fully understand that we can go so much further in life together as a team, and we'd love to have you be a part of it. So if you're interested in joining our community, please head to thriveonlife.com and join our Mighty Network. Within this network, you will find a diverse group of people that is on a mission of self-improvement. Within each improvement we make as individuals, we can then be of service to this world and help it get better as a whole. What's awesome is we've already had people make new friends, receive job offers, and collaborate on new business and creative opportunities. But most importantly, within this group, you will be guaranteed the ability to learn, grow, and share experiences with other like-minded individuals. This aspect is critical to our world becoming a better place for everyone, and we are proud of our group because it represents this. For other updates on the podcast community and business, please join our weekly mailing list. We'd love to hear from you. And before I leave you, I'd like you to always remember one thing. When we strive together, we thrive together. So please do your part in helping others thrive on life.